going to say? What would you like to say, Tommy? One, two, three. Go, Tommy! <laughs> Grief can't be all negative and sad. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Good Days, Bad Days podcast. I am Rachel Vani, and today we have a special guest. We have Ben Atherton Zeman. Hi, how, how's it going? Hi, so so great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm good. Yeah, and um, I'm so excited because you are our first guest in this Faith and Grief series. So uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, right now I'm actually in divinity school, uh, so I'm not sure I'm the best representative of my denomination, Unitarian Universalism, as I have about another year left to go before I'm an ordained cross my fingers, ordained UU minister, Unitarian Universalism, we call it UU. Uh, I'm 54 years old, so this is a new career for me. My career before this, Rachel, was I worked in shelters for battered women and rape crisis centers, mostly doing community education and prevention work. And then for about 15 years, I wrote and performed a play called Voices of Men that used uh, comedy and theater to educate people about stopping men's violence against women. Well, that's incredible. And I mean, I want to I want to know more about that. But why the career change? Why? What prompted that? Well, so if my first third of my career was working in the shelters and the rape crisis centers, my second third was performing the play. My third third, <laughs> the plan is to be a UU minister because I want to do the same kind of work, um, not just stopping uh, violence against women, but also stopping uh, sexism, racism, homophobia, uh, anti-Semitism, classism, etc., all within the confines of uh, parish ministry. Unitarian Universalism is a real progressive um, denomination. I've been a UU for all of my adult life, and it just felt like the right next step for me. That's awesome. What religion, if any, were you prior to that? I was uh, baptized a Catholic. I think you were as well. I Yeah, I was. Yeah. And, and when did you make that decision to move religions and, and change religions? And what prompted well, that? Well, I, I was relatively unchurched, as they say, in divinity school uh, as a young person. So although I was baptized, uh, I never went to Sunday school, barely went to church, frankly. Um, my parents and I spent more time talking about, oh, they wish they were bringing me to church than actually going there. Um, uh, I found actually new people who were Unitarian Universalists, uh, starting with the Great Peace March for Global Nuclear Disarmament that I did in 1986. I and many others, uh, about 800 people, walked from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. for the cause of global nuclear disarmament. When That's I a was, short, short walk. <laughs> it is a short walk, 3,700 miles, and it only took eight and a half months. Oh and God. that is when I learned about feminism. That is when I learned about Unitarian Universalism uh, from a couple of people who were UUs on the Peace March. And that's when I learned that what I wanted to do with my life was social justice. That is so incredible. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about Voices of Men? 
Well, it's I, my my role models in the battered women's movement were the people, really the women, who were the best presenters, who just would take an audience and have us all just hang on the edge of our seats. And those women were usually funny. Uh, Detective Sergeant Ann O'Dell, uh, the late great Ellen Pence, the women who were the keynote address addressers, the keynote speakers at uh, the conferences I went to, uh, mainly the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence Conference, uh, Lydia Walker is another, they were all hilarious. They were all funny about this topic, which is really not funny. And so I thought to myself, you know, Maybe I could, maybe this is what I should do. I mean, they're, I'm, they're my role models. I should maybe try to incorporate some humor into my uh, educational presentation. So I did that in as respectful a way as I could. But then I realized, you know, I'm an actor too. Like I do impressions. I can do voices. That's always been this weird talent of mine. Oh, wait, wait, so, wait, wait, stop. You can't just gloss over that. What is, what is your best voice? Uh, it's it's these two in the background that your audience can't see, Kermit the Frog and Elmo. I can do them in my sleep. Okay, well now you have to you have to do them just a little bit. Can you can you give us a Kermit? Okay, I, I I feel bad without actually having them in my hand, uh, so I'm gonna do that. Oh uh, uh, yeah, no, we were really busy up at the top of that closet. Yeah. Uh, hello everyone, Kermit the Frog here. I'm very excited to be here with Rachel Vaughn. Yay! <laughs> Your friend is podcast. Yeah, Emma wants to be Rachel's friend. Please. <laughs> that is amazing. Good job. Friend? Na- nailed it. Nailed it. Love it, Elmo. <laughs> Emma is not sure whether Rachel is his friend. I think he's, oh, of uh, she's course. mostly talking to Ben. Yeah, <laughs> he's Emma's friend. <laughs> bye, Rachel. Bye. All right, bye. Bye. Oh my gosh, that is really good. How did well, you even discover you. that you were good at that? Um, I was an only child. <laughs> <laughs> my parents moved around, around a lot. Um, my grandmother uh, had this reel-to-reel tape recorder, and she and I would play on it, and I'd be like, this is Walter Cronkite, CBS News, good night. Like, that doesn't at all sound like him, by the way, but I just, <laughs> I just, I just loved sort of playing on the tape recorder with my grandmother, and um, in Ithaca High School, and at Boynton Junior High School in Ithaca, I got these couple of friends, Rob Bernard and uh, Paul McLean, who also like to do voices, and these were, this was like time when the original Star Wars came out, so we were like, you know we were like <laughs> i can't even do it <laughs> oh my gosh that's the plants so you referred to will soon be in our hands like oh we my just, goodness that, that was, that was really to, good to <laughs> that was really good oh my gosh we're you know and um so here i am i'm i'm i'm, I'm passionate about stopping male violence against women. I uh, am noticing that the women, Ann O'Dell, Ellen Pence, uh, Lydia Walker, that I admired most were funny. And I was like, oh, why don't I like write a play and have it be with voices and I'll be like the catch and um, I can even call it Voices of Men and I can use these celebrity characters to uh, make people laugh and then they're less defensive because that's why they were doing this, right? Ellen Pence would give a talk about domestic violence to like huge rooms full of 
cops and I, I love my cops for all the cops in your audience and you know what it's like <laughs> to sit in all these trainings that you don't want to be in so these cops were not thrilled to be there uh and she won them over because she would just make them laugh and i thought okay well let me try this and so i i wrote this play and it has these these three sort of icons of Western masculinity, Austin Powers, uh, James Bond, Sean Connery, James Bond in particular, and then um, Rocky Balboa. So these three guys have sort of these aha moments with respect to in, respectively um, sexual violence, uh, domestic violence and objectification. What drew you to violence against women? Was it something that you had personally experienced or someone that you knew that had that experience? There wasn't one experience, but on that peace march in 1986 was the first time I really met uh, women who said they were feminists and explained why. I had the stereotype of feminism, oh, y'all must hate men, and uh, these women were like, no, we don't hate men, we just hate men's violence and sexism, and they, they taught me what that was. I mean, we would walk... It was a march, so you know, 12, 15, sometimes 20, 25 miles a day. That's a long time. And so um, Good some of these women, <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, I was like this captive audience. I was 19-year-old guy just like eager to learn. And so these women in the thing called the Women's Collective, uh, one woman, Liz Merrick in particular, were very generous with their time because I was asking sort of all these dorky questions that men ask like, doesn't feminism mean you don't like men? And uh, Liz was really patient, and these women were really patient. And they talked to me about the fact that every 12 seconds somewhere in the United States, a man abuses a woman, the woman that he has promised to love. And that every about two minutes in this country, a man rapes a woman, and it's usually a woman that he knows. And they taught me that the daily, uh, the now called microaggressions, but I don't really think of them as very micro, the daily uh, violence uh, uh, of men's sexual harassment, men's belittling of women, men interrupting women, <clears throat> men taking credit for women's thoughts, um, getting paid more attention to in meetings than a woman who has just said the same thing but wasn't paid attention to, um, the whole idea of mansplaining, a uh, book uh, called Men Explain Things to Me by Rebecca Salni, who is uh, my, my Facebook friend and a wonderful writer and wonderful person, um, explores this phenomenon of, uh, that you, I'm guessing, are familiar with, where like men will tell you how to do something that you know perfectly well how to do, assuming that they know how to do it better. These women on the Peace March and the Women's Collective taught me that you really can't have domestic violence, sexual violence, without a culture that favors my gender over yours, that favors Absolutely. whites over people of color. And that has these microaggressions mm -hmm. that assume that you're less than me. Mm -hmm. No, I totally That lit me on fire. That just lit me on fire. I'm, I'm getting on fire just talking about it. So I had to absolutely do this with my life. Well, thank you so much for doing that. I know that, uh, you know, lots of women have been impacted by domestic violence. I worked yeah. at the uh, YWCA doing, uh, I was an intern helping with uh, domestic violence divorces. It's so needed to have more people involved in that space because the mm -hmm. more people, the more awareness, um, the more that we can impact people's lives in a positive way. So I really exactly. appreciate that.
Well, um, back at you. Thank you for doing that internship. And oh, so you understand <laughs> once you get, well, right. But, but once you get involved in this, it's sort of hard not to drop everything and dedicate your life to it, which mm -hmm. is basically what I've done. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. It opened my eyes in a big way on how, how many attorneys spend so much time and dedicate their lives to that. And it was really eye-opening. Um, so I shout out to the YWCA for all that they do. So moving towards, I guess, in relation to grief, do you have any uh, personal experiences with grief in your own life? Well, that I do, um, unfortunately. Um, not so much with uh, domestic and sexual violence, although over the course of my career, I've met hundreds, probably thousands of survivors of all genders, mostly girls and women, uh, where the perpetrator is male identified, but not always. But grief has touched me very personally um, when in 1994, I think, or 93, um, my stepfather, who I grew up with, uh, him and my uh, mom, basically, I, I grew up with the two of them mostly, took his own life, unfortunately. And I was in graduate school and just sort of starting out on my career. And it just, it really did a number on me, did a number on my mom, who has just turned 80 and is, is doing very well. I'm happy to report. Uh, she and I both survived that. We are suicide survivors. Uh, and we benefited for, especially for the first couple of years from uh, the support groups that we found through the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And for years since then, I volunteer trying to help them uh, and especially help them reach other survivors who are newly bereaved. So let's kind of go back if you're comfortable talking about it. How did you find out sure. that he had taken his own life? Oh, it was awful, Rachel. I mean, uh, that night, uh, my mom called me and her voice sounded like I'd never heard it. She just said, you got to get down here. And she was like, her voice was shaking. And I drove down. I was living in Belchertown, Mass. And they were living at my, my grandmother's old place in uh, Springfield, Mass. So the drive's about an hour. And I honestly, I didn't, I, I knew he had been depressed. I knew he had attempted suicide just even a couple months before that. I knew he was really, really having a hard time. And yet I didn't think that that might have happened until I got into Springfield and it was like a couple minutes from the house. And then it went through my mind, oh my God, maybe he did it. And right after that came this little voice of like, well, that kind of be a relief. Mm -hmm. And right on that came a third voice of like, what? How dare you? Of course you wouldn't be relieved. He's your dad. And then, <laughs> then I had to like calm all the voices down and be like, okay, you guys go to your corners. We'll just, we'll just wait and we'll see what happens. <clears throat> I drove up to Shady Brook Lane where my um, grandmother's house was and I saw cops. And then I really freaked out. And then I uh, saw a cop getting out of his car and he was getting out really slowly. And then I knew my dad was dead. Because if a cop's, if there's something to be done, <laughs> a cop's getting out of the car, you know, with purpose, you know, and this person, this guy was not 
just was sort of waiting for me. I, like he got out really slow, like there was nothing left to be done. And I knew he was dead. So sure enough, I got to the house and they told me he, he was dead. And my mom was crying and I hugged her and I said, I want to go see him. And they were like, you do? And um, I said, yeah. So I went in and I saw him and I touched him. And then I went back into the house and my mom was crying and I kind of brushed by her and I went into my grandmother's room and closed the door and started kicking things. <laughs> and I the, I can't lock that door. So the mom would just, just sort of walked in behind me and she was crying. And so I stopped kicking things to hug her. Um, and then we just had a really, really hard couple of years. So whenever you, let's kind of backtrack a little bit when you're in the car and you're driving and you said, you know, you thought kind of like as a second thought, well, it, if he did do it, it would be a relief. Why do you think that you felt that? And I know a lot of people feel that and feel guilty for feeling that they way after a while. They do and they do. Yeah. So why do you think that you felt that way? Well, I, I, I mean, I would tr I would do anything to have my dad back, to have my stepfather back. I think that thought went through my head because it's, it had been so hard on my mom, you know? When I started leading the support groups at the uh, survivor workshops for AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, um, I found that there were a lot of people who had this, who had, I, I used to lead a support group called Forbidden Feelings and the, the main ones were anger and relief. A lot of folks have anger at their, their, their lost loved one. And they don't really want to talk about that because, you know, they want to respect the dead and everyone else is feeling bad that they're gone and they're mad at them. <laughs> like they're, they're feeling bad that they're gone, but they're also mad at them. So mm -hmm. they need a safe space, safe space to, um, to uh, talk about that. But my first forbidden feelings workshop, there was a guy and he, no, it wasn't even, it wasn't even a forbidden feeling. It was just a straight up workshop. There was a guy and we went around in a circle and, and I said, well, you know, they said who had passed or whatever. And I said, well, what feelings are coming up for you? And the guy goes, I'm relieved, honestly. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> like, just, just sort of came out with it, you know? And he wasn't like in a sociopathic, cold hearted way. It was just like, yeah, it was, she was not having a good time being alive. I was, it was a real burden for me. And so I felt relief and, it made me realize I hardly ever heard, hear anyone say that. And yet for some people that is like, for me, that was a very small part of what my feelings were. Uh, for others, it's a very large part. So I, I had uh, uh, folks in my support groups who were battered women and the person who uh, took their own life was their abusive partner. And this one woman in particular I'm thinking of, like everyone thinks he's a saint because that's how batterers usually present themselves. Like only their they're only violent and controlling to their partners and they look good to everybody else. So everyone else, A, was blaming her for him taking his own life and two was uh, lionizing him, had him in this sort of perfect uh, pedestal. And so she had nowhere to go with her feelings of relief. I think too, I mean, aside from those obvious feelings of relief whenever it's someone who's been an abusive partner, but I think too, a lot of people, when you have someone who's mentally ill, they are ill. It's the same kind of relief. I would imagine the same feeling as, um, I mean, maybe different, but 
as someone who was sick with say cancer or something mm. like that, and they're not suffering anymore. Um, it's a, it's a different type of suffering. And I could understand, I've talked to, uh, to several people who have lost uh, loved ones to suicide and definitely anger is a big, a big part that makes the grief very confusing for people. But the relief, I try to tell them, you know, they were sick, just like someone with cancer um, and people feel relief and it's okay for you to feel relief too. And Mm -hmm. be like, it's okay to feel that way. I mean, it's okay to feel whatever, which way of grief, everyone has different feelings surrounding a loved one's death. But yeah, thank you for for sharing that because that's something that a lot of people have said to me. um, And I think they are comfortable saying it around someone else who has lost someone and felt that way. Yes. But it's kind of one of those, like you said, forbidden feelings around grief. Yeah. Like you're not supposed yeah. to feel that way. You're only supposed to be feeling sad. That's the only emo- yes. emotion. <laughs> you're allowed the one thing. It yeah. reminds me of masculine socialization. You guys are allowed only a couple feelings or you're going to be seen as non-manly. And they're basically the, the same feelings that Beavis and Butthead have. Oh, I'm dating myself. <laughs> <with that rhyme. laughs> you know, humor, horniness, and uh, I don't know, anger. You know, so that's it. You don't get sadness. You don't get fear. You don't get anything. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think actually Beavis and Butthead is back. That's like hip now. It's like vin- <laughs> it's vintage. Good. I'm um, vintage now. <laughs> so how did your religion help you with that loss? Not at all. <laughs> I wasn't really involved in Unitarian Universalism then. I wish I had been. Um, it was all, um, I guess, what we'd call secular uh, support groups that I attended. And those were incredibly helpful. And there are many UUs who are volunteers with AFSP, but I didn't find my first church until I worked. I got a job in West Virginia uh, several years later. Um, it's helping me now because <laughs> I'm still grieving now, as you know, that the, the grieving process really never goes away. It just sort of changes and becomes part of you. And I can think of my dad and I can uh, think of a lot more happy times that we had together. And but, but for a long time, I was just thinking about that night and thinking about his depression and blaming myself, really thinking, well, what's uh, there, there was I could have done something more. I could have just whisked him away. There was a, there was a day where I had brought I brought him out on the ice with some skates and we we had uh, hockey sticks and we didn't have a puck. We had like a golf ball, basically the worst thing you could ever use for the ice. And we're just hitting this golf ball back and forth. Um, he's from Czechoslovakia. He's from, uh, it's called the Czech Republic now, but he's Czech. And, and, and like, I've never seen a man so graceful on skates. He would, all the best hockey players in my uh, junior high and, and high school, he would just sort of skate circles around them uh, in this little ice pond we had out in, uh, Trumansburg, New York, and he just, he seemed to sort of come out of his shell, come alive a little, you know, we were skating around and hitting the, the golf ball, and so part of me is like, why didn't I just do that with him every day? Why didn't I drop out of grad school? I was struggling anyway. I had undiagnosed ADHD. <laughs> I was really struggling in grad school. Why did I just drop out? My time would be better spent just like spending every day playing hockey with him until we got past this. I feel like everyone has those feelings of, you know, I call them the what a case of the what ifs. Yeah, the what ifs. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, well, what if I would have done this, if I would have done that? And I, 
Um, I feel like that's so common. But again, it's something that no one really talks about. And we just carry this guilt, which is so, so heavy. It's heavy. And the the AFSP folks were very helpful because a lot of them said, you know, once they have their mind made up, uh, you're not going to change their mind with some hockey games. And most of me believes that. (laughs) I think the harder thing might be, yeah, I could have done more. Yeah, I could have made different decisions and been there for him more. And it might have helped and it might have not. Do you carry that into your work with helping other people? Apparently I do, because here it is. Um, And uh, for me, uh, pastoral care, I have all these books next to me about pastoral care, um, is not about going to somebody's bedside and say, hey, here's, here's your prayer, here's your pill, you know, to make you feel better. It's about being where they are. So if they're experiencing loss or impending death of themselves or, un, you know, fear, I go there to be there with them. And it helps, I think, me to, for them to trust me if they know I've been there. So my, uh, I had a, uh, CPE is called clinical pastoral education last summer where I learned how to be a pastor and I didn't know how I would learn how to be do pastoral care but apparently it was by just doing it because <laughs> I was thrown into people's rooms right away uh, Dr. Wegraf our our, our, our <laughs> teacher on the third day so okay here's your here's your units and I'm like wait what do <laughs> we don't observe he's like no you'll be fine I'm like, well, what do we do? What do we do? Well, I don't know. You know, you go in the room and you say, Hi, I'm, I'm with the pastoral care office. Well, what, what, what do we say after that? It's like, I don't know. I'll say, like, how, just say, how's your day going? I'm like, okay, how's your day going? How's your day going? <laughs> I go there and I'm so scared. And, uh, it worked, you know, I was okay at it the first few days, but yeah, I ended up, I ended up really liking the experience. And Dr. Wegraf, his evaluation said, um, you do this work up close, Ben. <laughs> it's not an easy way to do this work. Uh, and you need a lot of breaks <laughs> when you do it. But you do this work up close. And you really get in there, get in there with the folks. And uh, I have a feeling that's a kind of um, minister I'm going to be. That's so great. And with you, you, how has your as you, you know, gotten more involved in the religion, how has that changed your view on, let's just start with death. So, you know, your view on what happens when you die. Well, this is such a good, I mean, we, the whole podcast could just be about this. And like I said, I'm not the best, I'm not even a remotely good representative of my denomination being still in divinity school. But UU is very interesting around uh, death and dying. See, for one thing, we don't have a creed. Like our religion does not subscribe to any one thing. We, ha- we do have seven magnificent principles that we uh, live by and hopefully soon an eighth principle. Um, and we do draw from sources of uh, uh, inspiration. But many of them, not just the Bible, not just the Quran, um, that's just one, <laughs> one out of my of the six sources. Um, we draw inspiration from anything, uh, the inspirational words and deeds of prophetic leaders. We draw inspiration from personal experience of the divine. Um, uh, 
I'm sorry to, I'm, I'm, I'm giving very long answer. No, that's okay. No, it's great. Keep going. But my point is we have all these different ways of dealing with death and dying um, at this church, the UU Church of Nashua, where I have the good fortune to be an intern. Uh, we've had a death cafe <laughs> a couple of times where guest speakers come in and talk about issues of death and dying. And it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, we're probably the only church that would have hosted it. <laughs> in, yeah. In our it's a slightly dark topic. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I, I, there are Christian UUs. We used to be a, a, deno a Christian denomination, but at this point, um, probably the majority are not Christian. Uh, we have a lot of humanist UUs uh, who do not believe in a supreme being uh, and who focus on making the world a better place here and now. We have Jewish UUs. We have Buddhist and Muslim UUs. Um, and so there are folks who do believe in death with dignity, and there are folks who believe in an afterlife, and there are folks who don't. So yeah, quite a wide, quite an interesting spirited discussion at these death cafes. Um, and there's no real, uh, I can't really say we as a denomination believe this. Well, what do you, what do you believe? Oh boy. <laughs> I wish I knew. Um, my wife Lucinda upstairs, um, uh, she believes in life after death. I envy that. I, I, I want to believe that, but I'm not sure. Same with the Supreme Being. I, I, I want to believe that, but I'm not sure. I'm an agnostic, and still they let me into divinity school. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really interesting. I think, you know, it's such a, it's such a cool idea that, and I always, maybe it's just my own thought on religion is from coming from a Catholic upbringing. Yeah. That if you are this religion, you have to believe this or you are not. And I think, that, you know, having uh, the ability to have that room to believe whatever you want to believe, but still it's, you know, it's not an all or nothing kind of deal. No. I think that's great. Well, and I would like to, I, I don't know how much of this we get to talk back and forth, but I would love to know uh, if you believe in a life after death. Yes, I do. But I, I, that did not happen until honestly, my personal experience. And um, I haven't actually talked about that on the podcast um, oh. in, in the actual uh, death of my husband and my daughter. So um, my first husband was atheist. Like he was, he, I, I would say he, he kind of was an open atheist. He wasn't like hardcore, but he really didn't believe in a God. He didn't believe in um, an afterlife. He was just like, I think we die. We go on the earth, we turn into earth and kind of this mm. beauty of the cycle of life. And that's sure. really what he believed in. Yeah. And I'm very, very science minded. If it wasn't, there wasn't evidence, hard evidence, he wasn't going to believe it. He sounds like my people. He sounds like you, you. Yeah, he, and, but he was, he still had a spiritual side, you know, he still, um, was, was spiritual in a way. Um, and I was more the open one. I believed in ghosts. Like I was, you know, a little bit more open than him, but, but, you know, still questioned like you, I don't know if there's a life after this. Um, that changed when I was there with him when he passed away. And I was actually holding him in the last moments of his life. Uh, we had all his family and friends uh, around us. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful death. Everyone was standing around him, telling him how much we loved him. There were jokes and conversations going on. Because, you know, death can take a while 
yes. when someone's sick and you take them off the ventilator. I mean, they can take hours and hours. His was relatively fast. It was about um, about maybe 30 minutes or so. And But we were all joking, talking. There was laughter in the room. We were mm. playing his favorite music. It was so beautiful. And as I'm laying there, I close my eyes and I just feel this... I, I can't even barely put it into words, this immense feeling of love and peace. And it was like, I, I had never experienced anything like that feeling before. And it's the only thing that I can think of that it was God in the room. Yeah. I don't know what else it could be. It was not just the fact that his family and friends were there. Cause I was, I mean, they were there for a while and we were having a great time, but it was this immense washing feeling of love. And then, um, the nurse came in and let us know that, you know, he was in taking his final breaths and everyone left the room and it was just me and him in the room. And as I'm laying on him, I feel him leave his body. I don't know how to describe it other than, you know, when you are sitting in a weird position and your leg falls asleep, yes, you get that tingling feeling mm -hmm. that moved through my entire body in a second. I don't know how to describe it. It's the weirdest feeling I've ever felt in my entire life. But I knew that he had left. And within three seconds of that happening, the nurse came in. Um, it was actually my, my daughter's pediatric hospice nurse that I'd been friends with. I asked her to come to the hospital and help us with his passing. Okay. She came in and said, he's gone. And I said, I know. Yeah. Like It was just, it was this very... It was even, he left before his even heart stopped. I felt that. Hmm. Um, and it was such a profound moment in my life that completely changed how I viewed death and how I viewed God and how I viewed religion. And, um, or, you know, I, I believe in a higher being. I don't know who it is. You know, I don't know whether it's God or I do believe that there is a higher being. But, um, and then afterwards, with my daughter passing away, I felt the exact same thing. It was the exact same thing that happened. I knew that she had passed away. It was, I even asked, well, she was staying around like after I was holding her for a long time and she wouldn't go. And then I said, it's okay if you go. And then she right. left. It was a very, very um, powerful moment. And I, felt comforted knowing that they are together and I had other experiences that have led me to believe that there is something after this and um maybe that's for another day but it was um maybe more of a paranormal discussion <laughs> but there are I I without a doubt in my core know and believe that there is something after this I just don't know what it is or what yeah. that looks like well, Rachel, I'm so sorry for your loss, both your losses, and also how you describe it is is beautiful, and oh, I I can relate. I had a I had a with my grandmother whose ring this is. Um, they, your listeners can't see my ring, but this is this is her ring that I had oh, resized nice. to fit me. Um, when my my grandmother passed, the moment she passed, I was looking across her bed. Uh, our neighbor's cousin was there, and we both kind of had this dizzy spell like tingling feeling washed through us and we looked at each other like what just happened that's literally what we both said and that was her passing and also the 
the wind stirred up. There was, uh, and the wind stirred the, 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 the hangings. And so when I called my mom, who was in the Czech Republic uh, minutes later, mom said, oh, I feel her right here. There's, there she is, there's the wind. So it was both the wind and I should ask her if she felt the tingling as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never talked to anyone else um, about that. And that's, that is so crazy. Yeah, I, I, it's a very interesting um, thing to talk about with other people. You never know people. Well, I don't want to say it because then I sound like a crazy person, you know? <laughs> yeah, but uh, we should say it because uh, then other people who, who are your listeners will maybe feel like, oh, maybe I'm not so crazy after all. Yeah, no, definitely. Let's, I know that you say that you don't know what happens or you don't know what you believe, but what do you hope happens after this life? Well, honestly, Rachel, this interview is helping me clarify both what I hope and um, and maybe what I believe a little bit more, because your description of a higher, you said a higher being, I would say a higher power. I do believe in that. It'd be silly just to think, <laughs> to me, I mean, all due respect to your late husband, and um, I don't think that there is nothing greater than ourselves out there that is creating. I mean, there's some theologians who think it's just the, the, that God or goddess is creativity. Um, I believe that the earth, the planet earth is alive, uh, is a living uh, mother goddess. Um, now that's different than an omnipotent being who creates planets, but I do at the very least believe that we're on an alive being. Um, and I felt that personally, on the Great Peace March, again, to return to that, 1986, for the first time, when I was walking and just suddenly felt this sense of presence wash over me, and I felt suddenly the happiest I'd ever felt, and I was so excited, and uh, I was telling everyone, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I just felt the earth being alive around me and through me, and yeah, I think some of them were, were taken aback a bit, but um, I have had I have had that experience, and many people have had direct experiences with the divine. I don't know if we have if they're like a an individual though. Certainly, I don't think we have an old white guy with a beard up there. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be well, only a white only a white man apparently. Yeah, there you All go, the yeah. depictions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and don't get me started about white Jesus. Yeah, that's not right. Um, no, yeah, totally. I, I have been educated by my my friends at the BU School of Theology about about the the problems having a white Jesus. But to get to your uh, question, what I hope is in the afterlife is kind of a combination of what uh, my wife Lucinda believes, and frankly, what your um ex what, what your late husband believes. I believe that we do return. We come from the earth and to the earth we shall return. And if that's what my body's going to do, it's going to nourish these plants that I see outside right now. That's all right with me. And I hope that I also will have some kind of consciousness so that I can then look down and be somewhat how, somehow a part of what's going on in the earth. Maybe even, as many believe, be reincarnated as another being. I, I, I hope that all that and more is true. Do you believe in ghosts? I do. And uh, so does my wife. She said, <laughs> when you're talking about 
ghosts that's 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 her thing she's uh actually died um three times she's been operated on uh three times and had to be be put under three times and she thinks that as a result of that two of those experiences were when she was very young uh she is able to talk to um um past loved ones and also she, more often she speaks to spirit guides Oh, that's that's so interesting. It's so oh. interesting, and I get to be married to her, which is even more fun. Uh, can I have her on the podcast too? <laughs> <laughs> I will absolutely ask her. <laughs> I would love that. Um, so is it? So it's after these near death ex, or I guess actual death experiences, <laughs> that she discovered that she had this uh, unique ability. Oh yeah, she kept, seeing, she kept seeing people and then she'd tell her parents, who's that so-and-so over there? Like, there's nobody over there. And uh, I mean, I'll let her tell you, but um, she would always know uh, when the phone rings, if, uh, who, who's, who's on the phone, especially if something has happened. And especially if someone has died uh, in their life, uh, she will actually just spontaneously call somebody out of the blue, like, oh, I really, really need to call person X. And person X will say, oh, it figures that you called, my dad just passed. Oh my goodness. Oh, I would love to have her on and talk about I'll, her experience. I know. Well, it, as far as moving forward with your, your becoming a pastor, so what are your plans with that? What do you want to do with that? Well, I pray uh, almost every day. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's like, who am I praying to? So uh, how I start my prayers, how does an agnostic pray? Um, I, I say, uh, Mother Goddess, Father God, Spirit of Life. And the Mother Goddess, Father God part I got from um, my uh, colleague at the School of Theology, Mahalia Dam. She led a prayer for us once like that. Oh, I like that. So, I, I, And then Spirit of Life is what a lot of Unitarian Universalists refer to as, as a higher power. How very so Catholic of you three. to have the Trinity. <laughs> I know, right? I have three of them. That's my Catholic roots showing me. <laughs> Mother God is Father God, Spirit of Life. Um, please, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this now as a prayer, please help me do this job well. Please help me be a minister in a way that does your work. And I hope that that will be um, by continuing to do social justice. Um, so if these reading glasses I have on, if one lens is social justice, the other lens is covenant. So that's my current understanding of UU theology in a nutshell. Social justice and covenant, not just as things we look at, but as the very lenses we look through to do everything. So I hope that a congregation likes me enough that they want to hire me to be their settled minister. And I will do this work with them, trying to create a better world, a more socially just world, by covenanting with them so that we bear each other's burdens uh, so that we hold each other accountable so that we do this work that needs to be done. Cause look at the work, the work needs to be done. We have a job to do and now is the time to do it. Thank you so much for your time today and talking about this. This was so interesting and really fun. So thank you. It's been fun and an honor for me too. And I, I appreciate, I'm sure your listeners uh, will appreciate um, your uh, vulnerability in talking about what happened to you as well. Um, so thank you. This is a great gift that you're giving to the world, this podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you would like to know more about Ben Atherton Zeman, please visit our website, which is gooddaysbaddays.show.